There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, it's official, BBC Three will move online in February. What does this, with additional cuts to sport and entertainment, mean the BBC will look like from 2016? How can brands crack Twitter? I'll ask Tony Ayres himself, comedian David Schneider, and his colleague David Levine, co-founders of social media writers, that lot. Plus, we discuss the Sun's polling problem, the end of FHM, and the media quiz dons its wig and judges the news from the libel courts. That's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me to enliven this rather sombre Friday afternoon at the Hospital Club is journalist and broadcaster Tom Latcham. Hello, Tom. Hello. Welcome to the show. There's, there's a reason why I'm doing that. What, why you're saying hello? In that way. <laughs> You've joined a Lionel Richie fan club? Close, close. Oh, is it Adele? It is Adele. Have you? Okay, so Tom, I suspect, guessed that I was about to ask him. Tom, what have you been up to this week? To which I guess the answer is something to do with Adele. Well, Ollie, I've been rooting around in Adele's old loft. You can take the journalist out of the tabloid. <laughs> yes, I did. A, I I, uh, I went back to her, the home in which she was born this week, given wow. uh, obviously her uh, the record the subsequent fastest, success, fastest selling record in the history. And I went rooting round in her loft, and I found quite a lot of her old stuff. I've got to say. So uh, keep your eyes out, eyes peeled for a, a story this weekend. Hopefully on it. Fingers crossed. What? Wow! Yeah. You're giving us a pre-exclusive. I found her story. birth card. Uh, you know, which uh, that you get given with your measurements and all that sort of stuff. I found her first tricycle. I found a picture she'd drawn of a, a of a horse when she was young. So yeah, quite quite. The, uh, I was only expecting just to get photos of inside of a pokey little old flat, but um, the woman who lived there went, "I think she's some stuff still in the loft." So I went, "Wow, well let's get up there then." <laughs> this is good old fashioned, morally dubious tabloid. <laughs> it's not morally dubious. She there, her mum left it, so uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm merely okay. saving it and uh, and maybe it'll be kept for posterity by a museum. Who knows? Maybe I'm giving something back. Have you got photos of some of it on your phone? I don't, unfortunately. What? No, I don't. Opportunity missed. <laughs> uh, and joining Tom is the news editor at Broadcast Magazine, who doesn't do too much digging around in people's lofts. I can't compete with Adele. I no. <laughs> no well, maybe Michael Grade's old house or something. <laughs> uh, also, Jake Cantor, you are the host of uh, Broadcast's podcast, Talking TV which we at the Media Podcast strongly recommend. We're sisters, really, We are we? sisters, you and I. <laughs> um, so what have you been up to this week? I've been very busy on uh, the BBC Three stuff, which I'm sure we'll come on to. I was uh, amused by the uh, Evening Standard uh, when it was covering its own 
Theatre Awards. There were three separate pictures of Yevgeny Lebedev in the paper. The third of which That's was who him. Everyone wants to see. <laughs> the third of which was him spread eagled, lying in front of the winners. And I couldn't decide whether that was him just being blindly narcissistic, or the picture editors were having a bit of a joke. On his or six. both. <laughs> or a bit of both. If you're going to spend that kind of money on a newspaper, then I imagine the least get that on they page can three. Do. Exactly. <laughs> Put you on page three. Uh, well, Jake, as you effortlessly predicted, we are going to start this week with the news that BBC Three is moving online. In a way, I'm grateful, so it means we don't have to talk about it again, uh, because there's been a lot of speculation, but it's finally been confirmed by the BBC Trust. We're going to lose the... Do you still call it a terrestrial transmission when it's on digital? I don't know, but it's going to come off Freeview anyway in February. But before then, there's this period of transition. Jake, what does that mean? How's that going to work? So uh, it will start the process of building up its online presence in January. That will continue throughout February. And the idea is the channel will close right at the very end of February. And so you'll have an online-only proposition from March. Um, so do you get the channel when you turn it on in February or do you So get, they're, you they're saying they'll, they'll keep it open as a sort of promotional window. Quite what that will look like, I don't know. Lots of trails for online content, lots of messages saying, hey, we, we don't live here anymore. We're, we're in this big new digital world. It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, most new online services don't get the opportunity to have a, a free BBC channel pumped into someone's home with an advert on it. What I was wondering, Jake, is... Um are the BBC expecting young people, which is obviously, you know, they're aiming this, that's why they're going off, off air, because they're aiming, you know, the, the younger generation are watching everything online. Are they expecting these young people to actually go online and watch this stuff? Have they done any research into it? They've done, they've done a lot of research into it. And, and? they think it's going to be difficult at first. <laughs> um, of the viewers that access the BBC only through BBC Three, 80% of those people will be lost because of the online transition and those are the very kind of people that the bbc should be trying to hold on to right Tom? Well, then, then, then of course there's the danger if if they don't end up watching that content online that then that will be axed somewhere down the line too and so then you've got you know we're already going to be losing a lot of great programming for for younger people that wouldn't exist if bbc3 weren't there and then losing it altogether potentially down the line if, if, if it doesn't work. Possibly. Shame. I mean, look, there's no doubt that BBC Three faces a sort of long walk across the minefield that is the internet, which is sort of littered with digital projects that have failed. But people will get around BBC Three in the industry. There will be efforts to make this work and people will support it. I mean, I know it has its detractors, but I think we've got to get on with it. And it is still going to be one of the best outlets in the UK for content for young people. The thing I wanted to point out in all of this, and it gets a bit masked in the discussion about should it move online, shouldn't it? BBC Three has fundamentally had its budget cut in half. And that is not a good thing, whichever way you spin it. And that's nothing to do with actually coming off. It's not nothing to do, but it's got very little to do with what they were spending on having this digital channel, right? Actually being on the telly. That didn't cost the no 20 whatever million. 30 million pounds of that is going into drama on BBC One. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's important to note that BBC One and BBC Two will have new obligations written into their licences, which means they have to provide more content for young people, and that is a big challenge to those two channels. They they have to engage with the younger audiences. Okay, now it wasn't the only change actually announced by the Trust this week. CBBC is going to be extended from 7pm 
to 9pm. I remember the days when it was just the broom cupboard for an hour and a half on, a, on an afternoon before Neighbours. What child is watching CBBC at 9pm? Well, there's, there's been a lot of grumbling about this. Parents are unhappy because they think it means their children are going to be staying up longer till 9 o'clock, potentially, as you say. Well, Show um, some parents yeah, well, Tell the, them to go to bed. As the BBC Trust said, <laughs> there is an off button. <laughs> yeah, but then what child is it for? Presumably the stuff they're going to be showing between 8 and 9 is for teenagers. Uh, Children's or, or, Ward. Well, children's ward, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> press gang. Well, um, I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't be surprised if you see slightly more sophisticated content being commissioned for those slots. Um, Possibly BBC uh, Three style stuff. Exactly. Huh? Stuff that is going to about that is going to say to that young audience, "Hey, look, these are the kinds of things we're doing on television, but you might want to check out what we're doing online as well." Okay, and they also announced cuts to sport and entertainment programming to save 150 million pounds. Uh, is that where you'd save 150 million pounds if you were in charge of these things? I've, I've worked. I've done some work for Five Live. Um, I've been up to their office and I spent a few weeks working on one of the shows up there. Um, and I think that, in terms of middle management, there is a huge amount that they could get rid of. You know, there's people there who've been there for for many many years, who, as far as I could see, often do not very much at all and yet they're still there and so actually potentially I come from a, a background of you know private sector I used to work for the news of the world if you ain't doing your job you're out mate and actually like, there should why not bring in a culture whereby if you're in this job there's actually no, not a real need for you you're not really doing very much you too should be out it's not the civil service it's media, you know. It's somewhere in between, though, isn't it? In truth, there's so much hand wringing over everything the BBC does, as we illustrate, you know, fortnight after fortnight on this show. That's why all these middle managers need to be but there. Given there's so much hand wringing, why aren't they just avoiding that? Which it seems they are now with these, with a lot of these cuts. They're going to cut a thousand middle managers, but there's such hand wringing. Just get rid of those people, you know. And then you avoid the hand wringing, and and also the criticism of a lot of people. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of people at the BBC who don't do a great deal, and and they could definitely save money in that money money there. That's probably fair. Um, <laughs> I think uh, the BBC always traditionally struggles to make people redundant. It's not an easy process. Um, they made me redundant very easily. <laughs> it took, well, it took I mean, them one meeting. It, it remains very heavily unionised, the BBC, and there is always opposition to job cuts. What the BBC is saying in this instance is that content cuts will be a last resort. Uh, however, it has not ruled out content cuts, and I think they will be inevitable. And we're talking about BBC Three. They made the decision to close BBC Three because they said they wanted to avoid what they call salami slicing. As far as I can see, we've got the worst of all worlds at the moment. We've got BBC Three closing as a linear channel and probably more salami slicing. More salami slicing itself sounds like a BBC Three show. And, and the, <laughs> the worst thing is is this is just a taste of things to come. This £150 million that they're trying to prioritise at the moment, by spring next year, they'll be trying to find £550 million worth of savings. And that, I think, will inevitably result in service cuts. And then meanwhile, and Jake, maybe you can try and explain this to me, They've announced they've got £85 million of funding from the British government to expand services in Russia and North Korea and the Middle East. Uh, This is the same government that said the BBC had to pay for the World Service because they didn't want to fund it anymore. That's right. This is a direct diplomatic intervention. Uh, It's not got a lot to do with uh, the licence fee and where the BBC stands on its sort of broader financial envelope. This is the government saying we want to maintain Britain's soft power overseas, uh, make sure that we are promoting the right sort of culture to countries that perhaps there may be trouble brewing. 
the thing that, that Tom, Tom Latcham is rolling his eyes at well, that. It's cheaper than you know fighting it with actual weapons and that, isn't it? You know, it just seems crazy. I mean, you know, at a time when they're cutting from pl- places that we really, really need uh, or we really like, as as people who pay this money, you know, we were just talking about sport and BBC Three and all those things that people actually use as consumers who pay for this service. We're basically doing the government a favour. Our money going towards pushing democracy in areas like. North Korea. But this and is the Russia argument, and within gov- this is the argument within government spending around foreign aid itself, isn't it? That you're articulating here, basically. Why are we giving telly to India? They've got nuclear weapons. Well, I'm not. I'm not against giving, you know, foreign aid. But as far as I can see, this is just a propaganda tool by the government to push their agenda in countries where there's going to be issues of terrorism and, 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 and difficulty. And, but that's and exactly what it is. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not. They're not. Um, they're not beating around the bush on that fact. I don't think. <laughs> the thing that I find slightly troubling about all of this is. How much influence will the government have over where the world service is going to push forward? What sort of new services is it going to launch at a time where Tony Hall, the director general of the BBC, is talking about independence all the time? This is a bit worrying because he's quite happy to open up his hands. Uh, when, he's like grateful when, when, you know, for it. He's grateful for it. He's, <laughs> he, he holds up his hands when, when George Osborne opens up his wallet. Also, it's funny how the government, uh, like the BBC, when it helps them, but when it doesn't, they're willing to cut it all, you know. Yeah, they don't seem to be too prepared to cut politics shows off local radio, do they? Uh, right, uh, before we go to the break, uh, we're going to talk about making money on Twitter. It might be a hard way uh, to make money, but that hasn't stopped the comedian and writer David Schneider. Along with co-founder David Levine, he created That Lot, a company that does funny social media campaigns for brands and broadcasters, kind of white-label comedy, basically, uh, including attention-grabbing campaigns for The Apprentice, Tesco, The Guardian, and many more. I went to their offices in East London to find out how it grew into the success they're enjoying today. we both Twitter obsessives. I was pounding away remorselessly at my Twitter account, ignoring anyone in the real world. And at the same time, I was working as a director on adverts. And David Levin, my colleague, if you want to take up the story from your side. I, to cut a very long story short, set up a Twitter account for my local pub, the Dolphin Pub in Hackney in East London. One of the rumours on Twitter on the night of the riots was that Dolphin uh, had been burnt down by the rioters, which... East London was in uproar about because it's sort of a bit of a, an East London institution. Um, and I'd moved literally across the road from it um, above the eye in Iceland. And then because I could see that it was fine, I tweeted about it. And then lots of people started tweeting, replying, oh, thank God for that. It's the only pub I've ever had sex in and all these kind of filthy and hilarious stories. So for a joke, I decided to just mainly for mine and my flatmates amusement, just set up a not really a parody account, more just kind of a tribute Twitter account, but called it the Dolphin Pub. And then when it started doing really well, I went into the pub and told them about it. I've set you up this Twitter account. Um, Lots of people following it and they were like, great, what's a Twitter account? And I was just, oh, well, forget about it. Did it for a bit longer. And then they started noticing that they were getting busier because of it, particularly during the week. And they sort of asked if they could pay me to do it. But by that point, I'd already been asked to tweet for people like The Voice and Adidas, and I was realising that... How? Yeah, that in itself is an interesting story. So I went on a BBC podcast talking about mainly brands that I liked, but I didn't like what they'd been doing on... or didn't think they were that great on Twitter. One example was Adidas. And then I was away that weekend with my girlfriend and got a call from, hey, it's such and such here from Adidas. We heard you slanging us off on that podcast. And I was like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And they're saying, no, no, we like sort of uh, agreed with a lot of what you were saying. 
Do you fancy doing some tweeting for us around the Euro 2012 football, which they were sponsoring? So I did that, which did really well for them. And then I met David Schneider. So you founded a company together called That Lot. And basically what you do is somewhere in the middle of the two worlds that you described. Uh, Because it's not telly and it's not just writing for the internet. A lot of what you do is writing for the internet about TV programs. You're trying to create a live event around what the TV schedulers hope is a live event. Things like The X Factor and Have I Got News For You going out. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think perhaps a lot of the reason why it's been going well for us so far is that we apply a lot of the sort of TV rules and um, things that both David, because my background prior to this is I used to work at MTV and then for sort of pop magazines and various production companies. But I think we've applied a lot of that to writing and creating stuff for social media and perhaps more so than a lot of people that hadn't either worked in uh, tv before and particularly around the now we're doing quite a lot of video so um video for twitter and video for facebook a lot of that i think is we're very very lucky that because of david's background and david's skills we're making things that are a lot closer to the types of things you would see on tv but obviously with the knowledge of uh, what people want on social so it's kind of that nice combination that works Yeah, I mean, so you are behind the Have I Got News For You Twitter account. Now, a lot of people looking at that, I think, would just assume that it's the writer's room or program associates, whatever they call themselves on that show now, that were cracking out those jokes as well. The idea is the whole way through the week, there's topical gags coming. Yes. But it's not. It's from you. Who's writing those jokes? Well, so we have a team of writers, topical writers, and every day we... So we have our own sort of virtual writing room. And it's all overseen by the same producer who oversees the TV programme. So we would submit the jokes and then he would say yes, no, yes, no. So there is that coherence there. But I think what was important for Have I Got News For You was that um, things have changed in telly and there was a time where you would wait a week and store up your topical funnies uh, and the moment of topicality and comedy would be Have I Got News at the end of the week on a Friday night or whenever it was. But that's gone now. That model has gone now because Twitter's doing the jokes in real time. And so Have I Got News for you recognise that they need to have that real-time presence as well. And of course one of the things that makes it stand out is the quality of the gag, which can be quite a difficult thing to do speedily. As you say, if, if there's a process in place there's that contradiction isn't there between being one of the first to get on the hashtag when you know George Osborne steps in a puddle and being the one who's got the best gag yeah. so three hours later it's still being retweeted the speed with which you tweet something funny on Twitter is almost as important as the joke itself I think when you say I think particularly just or not even just humor sometimes just anything that you're talking about but also uh you want to do a, a good joke you want to do a great joke and it is about surfing that wave of topicality and getting on board at the right moment and letting the 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 fact that everyone's talking about it you're joining the conversation that's twitter's little catchphrase join the conversation you've got to join it at the right moment but it was interesting that chat we did ollie with um, we were out in dublin talking with the uh, ceo of the onion because uh, what they do is they just make sure that they have the best joke And so they don't worry quite so much about getting there quickly. Whereas I think with Have I Got News For You, like with my own account as well, there's a sense where better get the jokes to be very good quality, but also quick because everyone moves on very quickly. And the style of joke is changing as social media evolves as well, isn't it? I mean, back in 2009, 2010, Twitter was a one-liner platform, 140 characters, that's it. Uh, Now, or maybe a hashtag... Uh, Now there's photo, there's video that you alluded to earlier. There are tricks you can use to try and get your tweet seen by more people and stick around for longer. Does that help the joke or does that make it harder? 
you move with what's what's possible. So now we do do images and gifs are the things now. You know, it's very good to respond to um, a tweet with a gif. You know, these reactive gifs. It's refreshing to see you embracing these things because I, I'm old. No, because you're a you're a wordsmith. I kind of think you. Yeah, yeah. I could imagine you being sort of like Norma Desmond. You know, it's the pictures that got a small, not me, or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, I I am a wordsmith, but I'm also uh, obsessed with the visual. I mean, I'd like a certain generation knows me um, for the comedy that I did in the '90s, um, but there's another generation, a younger generation, who knows me as Uncle Max which is this sort of sub-Mr. Bean um, visual uh, show that I did on CBBC, um, so with no words. And so I, I think the visual element really excites me, and I'm very excited by how video and images is now working on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook's fantastic for um, video now and short video. And whenever I do a video on Facebook, it's all about this three set of first three seconds because it automatically plays without sound. So you want to make sure that the first three seconds of your Facebook video is, oh, what's that? I'm going to click on it and listen to it. But all that being said, which is all true, the one thing, though, that remains constant throughout my, all the time that I've been a, a tweeter is the power of a pun. And, I, I'm, you know, there's a, a huge amount of... Can you give us an the, example? Well, yeah, so I'd say of some of, you know, of, of maybe the 10 of the most successful tweets that we've had, I'd, I would be guessing that at least six or seven are just puns. People, Twitter seems to like sort of fairly lame I know puns. you've got one at the top of your head. Uh, okay, so I did one for when I was tweeting for PG Tips as uh-huh. the PG Tips monkey, because yeah. that's the sort of highbrow stuff that I do. Uh-huh. The majority of what I was doing was just tweeting uh, teabag puns, one of which was, don't you wish your boyfriend was hot like tea, which um, I think at the time of speaking is the, the most retweeted thing that Unilever <laughs> have ever had. And certainly I would not suggest this uh, is Shakespeare by any means, but I think there's just something about the immediacy uh, and the sort of throwaway nature of a pun that works incredibly well on Twitter. And we're lucky in our team to have some of the world's greatest punners, punsmiths. And how does that process work, actually? If you're listening to this and you are a freelance comedy writer, if, if you want to contact you and say, yeah, I'd love to write puns for that lot, do you basically get paid when it gets sent out, not when you send it in? Well, I mean, it's different ways. We, we hire freelancers and writers um, much the same way that I've previously been hired as a freelance writer for magazines and blogs, just as by a day rate. We are busy and we certainly would welcome people to, to get in touch. The great thing, I suppose, about particularly Twitter writing is you can see very quickly whether someone is A, good at it, and B, right for the account that you're looking for. Because they get likes and, and retweets. Straight away, you get that feedback. But even just from seeing what they've done, so what we tend to do is if someone gets in touch and is interested in writing for us, we'll ask for three or four examples of tweets for one of our accounts. And you can see pretty quickly, can't you, whether they're right. So yes, get in touch by all means. And David, you're currently writing a film with Amanda Iannucci. Yes. Um, is that something that potentially could go viral? I mean, when you're doing any creative project, are you thinking, yes, this is the thing that we're going to put on Facebook? Or does some creative project just not lend themselves to well, it? Well, that's a big feature film. But I imagine once it's made, that's the, time, the moment to think, right, how do we now put it on social and how how can we how can it best work on social i know with so you're the, not thinking that when you're writing it that's n- what i'm getting at no I, what i'm thinking when writing it is a oh, christ this is hard um <laughs> but um but for example for example with josh uh, the josh the sitcom for bbc3 that i directed um this is josh widdicombs josh widdicombs that's going out at the moment josh widdicombs when i was directing it i wasn't thinking about the social you're thinking about that particular genre of product that you're working on you want to make that as good as possible now i'm thinking right what's the what's 
what's the best thing that we can do in social? So we looked at doing a periscope, so uh, a live periscope, a live feed of with Josh and Tom behind the scenes because I felt that was good. We did a, a, a quiz uh, to win tickets, but one that used video extracts and people had to go to iPlayer to see what the answers were. You know, so that's a sort of clever way to drive people to iPlayer. So uh, we'll do Facebook Live, which is this, like, this great thing where Facebook have now got this live video which suddenly appears on your feed. So we're, uh, we're going to do that with the, with the cast. So just looking at different ways now where you can support the traditional medium of TV or film through social. Seems like the kind of thing the BBC would struggle to do in and of themselves because it's scary, like you say. Maybe you need to, someone else to go it, out there and be it fearless is scary, and say, well, but try this. Yeah, they've got to try, and, and that's where you know it's it's good to have that expertise in both fields. But I, I'm very passionate about the possibilities of Periscope uh, and of this live video, Facebook Live as well, because how exciting is it to you know to to follow Ant and Deck up until they get on... I think they do do some on Britain's Got Talent, you know, but it's just like, you need to know that... You need to have that sort of sense of what people want, of structuring it. That's why I was very keen with with the Periscope, that we, you know, it was interesting chat. It was like a little chat show, a 10-minute chat show, and then something that you wouldn't see on a chat show. Here we go live backstage. I guess that's the point of it, though, which is I think the way you prepped the Periscope is the way you would have prepped a bit of a little TV chat show, which I think if you hadn't worked in TV, perhaps you wouldn't think to do. So a lot of the ones that I've watched where they've had access to, you know, big stars and stuff, it hasn't flowed in that same way or they've done it somewhere too noisy and everything else. But um, yeah, it's definitely a huge, huge opportunity for TV shows. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Friends of the Media Podcast. We will get back to the show in just a second, including probably the most inane version of the media quiz you'll ever hear. But before that highlight, I just want to say thank you to the 12 of you who stepped forward after the last show to contribute to the Media Podcast war chest. That brings the amount of supporters to the podcast this year to 55. Thank you. You're all wonderful people. Dedications at the end of the show. The rest of you, though, go now to our secure website, themediapodcast.com. Please, choose a level of support. You can do it as a one-off or as a monthly payment. You can do it from your mobile. Pause the pod. 
give generously, keep us on the air. Thanks. Okay, now back to the show. Thanks, Ollie. Uh, back with me here in the hospital club, Jake Cantor and Tom Latcham. Let's crack on with some news in brief, or news in briefs, I should say, because we're starting with The Sun, uh, who have caused a few ruffled feathers this week with their headline, One in Five British Muslims Has Sympathy with ISIS. Uh, First Servation, who conducted the poll for The Sun, distanced themselves from the way it was treated. And then The Times, uh, News UK stablemate of The Sun, of course, corrected its own story on the Servation survey, saying it, quote, did not distinguish between those who go to fight for Islamic State and those who join other factions in Syria. Uh, Tom Latcham, I, I think, in fairness, it probably was fairly clear from the question, the fighters they were talking about when they asked the question. But nonetheless, the way The Sun reported this story, it was uh, really taking it out of uh, context, wasn't it? Well, there's a few things here. There was an interesting, a similar poll for Sky News in March showed that a higher proportion of Muslims, 28%, showed at least some sympathy with young Muslims leaving the UK to join fighters in Syria. Didn't cause outrage, which shows in a way that whatever the sun does, there will be people who want to complain about it. And, you know, they've had a thousand complaints to Ipso. How many of those actually read the sun? I'd imagine probably quite, quite a small number of those that read the sun. Also, Servation complaining about this. What did they think the Sun were going to do? I mean, this is the paper who, in after um, uh, you know after the Paris attacks, uh, they they did a leader saying these monsters have support among a minority of Muslims. Dash a quarter thought the Charlie Hebdo gang had a point. I mean, what did Salvation think that that the Sun was going to do with this? The Sun is not known for being restrained, and I, I guess that it doesn't matter whether I support the Sun or I don't support the Sun. I mean, I read the Sun every day, but. Let's, you know, let's face it, they are not known for underplaying things and they have an agenda. What did Salvation think? I mean, YouGov turned it down. They were offered to do this and they said, no, we haven't got time or the money to do a proper survey. Did they? Or did they actually think, I, I kind of know what the Sun are going to do with this and I'll leave it? Well, OK, well, let's talk about that. Should the Sun be doing that when we're in this very politically febrile time? What, do I think they should be doing it? No, I don't think they should be doing it, but... I'm not the editor of The Sun, and I'm probably not a typical Sun reader. Um, what if you were Muslim, though? Would well, you stay BBC, being a Sun reader? Also, the BBC did a similar, uh, a similar Comres poll that found 27% had sympathy for Charlie Hebdo, and they ran that as a, as a lead article. I mean, yes, the, the sort of one in five support jihadis, have sympathy for jihadis, is inflammatory, but actually the BBC have run similar polls and nothing. Because the BBC don't present it for obvious reasons, all the same reasons well, they, you're they, saying. They did the intro that said that 27% had sympathy for Charlie Hebdo. Yes, I mean, but they don't present it in the screaming black and white headline because they're not a tabloid newspaper. It's part of this issue and the way it's been reacted it's to. It's the sun. Yeah, but it's also it's on it's on every street corner, it's in every cafe, isn't it? So when you say people might not be sun readers, it, it's there in front of their face in a way that it isn't in a BBC web article that's with a bit more nuance in it's it. It's on the BBC website, which is the biggest red website in the, in, in the country, probably in the world, one of the biggest news websites in the world, and it was on the top front page I mean you know it, I'll go back to it as well whether I agree with it or not it kind of doesn't matter it's the sun and it's kind of what they have done historically okay, and d- continue to do before I go to Jake on this just one more question mm. which I tried to ask you earlier what if you were a Muslim reader of the sun and you saw that on the front page would you be alienated from buying the sun again afterwards I mean how many Muslims read the sun I, don't, I haven't got a, I don't know, I haven't known the stats on that but I'd imagine that probably not a huge amount it's not particularly aimed at those people it's aimed at in a way, and particularly, and particularly under right. to- White Vanman, but particularly under Tony Gallagher now, Middle Englanders, he, you know, he's moving it more to become what the Mail does. He came from the Mail, Tony Gallagher, and actually, it's got a feel of the Daily Mail now. So actually, it's it's that sort of white Middle England. 
person. That's that's their aim. That's their target. It's not the four percent of Muslims in the country. Jake, did you understand the outrage about this? It's difficult, isn't it? Did the Sun overreg? these findings uh, to pander to the prejudices of its readers maybe i don't know did it deliberately misrepresent the findings i hope not is there more important journalism going on on muslim attitudes to isis yes i think so and i think by and large the broadcasters particularly from what i saw uh, and i'm sort of wearing my broadcast hat here uh, after the Paris attacks, generally got it right, and they were reflecting such a, a good range of opinion. We've got quite a good record in this country, going back to the seven seven bombings, of there not being uh, Islamophobic attacks or, or not horrendously violent ones anyway after an incident like that. But but if you're editing the Sun, you've got to think when you publish something like that, there is a risk here that someone's going to someone who's probably balmy, frankly, but someone's going to enact some sort of reprisal. That's the ethical thing you need to think about when you're publishing that front page as well, isn't it? That's the ethical thing you and I would think about, but that's probably, in a way, why we're not the editors of The Sun. I mean, there's many other reasons why I'm not the editor of The Sun, but, you know, there are, if you edit The Sun, you are thinking in a different world, in a different way. Whether it's right or not, I don't agree with it personally, but that's kind of what The Sun does. Right, next up, this week we had the Radio Production Awards, organised by Radio Indies, celebrating production teams behind hit shows. Uh, Gold Award this year went to comedy titan David Tyler, um, but the interesting thing was the presence of the headline sponsor Audible, uh, audiobook distribution company. Jake, they've started to make positive noises to indies in the past few months about making original content for them. Just generally, I think. I mean, I raked through our archive uh, in preparation for this, and they're doing so much at the moment. I mean, they're ad funding Krakenori, which is a big show on Dave. They're doing this thing called Pilot Speaking, which will feature comedians like uh, Kevin Eldon and Hugh Dennis uh, doing audio for them. Uh, they're hunting for original drama. They've teamed up with the guys who create Rasta Mouse, which is a CBB show, and they're doing an audio show based on that. So it's clear that they're pretty serious about this stuff and there are opportunities there if, you, if you've got the right ideas. Do they fancy doing uh, Stars in Your Loft? Because <laughs> uh, I think there's something in this uh, we could, you know, Does it work audio-wise or, or is it more of an image? Is it more of a sort of well, moving picture show? I would show? like I it know. to be image, Tom, but you didn't take any pictures, so you failed at your own multi-platform me. With me. Um, Has the time come in the sense of original content being a driver to Audible, though? Um, because it's something that a few years ago seemed unlikely. You go to Audible to listen to, you know, Hugh Laurie reading his novel and that's it. Uh, the idea that you'd go to listen to a radio show felt odd. But then Netflix and Amazon Prime have come along and, of course, Amazon owns Audible. Uh, and now it doesn't feel so crazy that you justify your subscription of £8 a month or whatever it is so you could hear a specific programme that's exclusive to that service if there was enough of it. Yeah, I know you're probably going to groan when I say the, the serial effect. I'm sure that is trotted out whenever you speak about podcasts these days. But... I think there is something in it. Things are cliches for reasons, and um, you know, people have discovered that you can consume audio in the way that you consume television, and it can be just as pleasurable. All right, lads, come back. We're going to stop talking about the Radio Production Awards now and start talking about boobs and guns and booze. Because, Tom, uh, we heard since the last show that FHM, Lad Mag, is closing. Zoo, Uber Lad Mag, also closing at the end of this year. What happened there? No one's reading them anymore. 
so that's pretty simple. They, they're not making any money, so they're shutting. I mean, I used to work for Loaded I used to, uh, as a freelancer, as a contributor. Uh, they still owe me two and a half grand, by the way, when they shut down. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll be getting that back anytime soon, although Loaded is back online. It, it just suggests and shows, in fact, how we've moved forward as a society. The fact is, back in the mid-90s when they were booming, there was that whole lad culture and people would buy it, you know, you would be, you know, boobs on the front and people would buy that sort of thing. I think we've become a bit slightly more refined. Also, if you want lad stuff, you subscribe to Lad Bible, right? Because that's right there in your Facebook feed and it's funny and it's the same sort of thing. What I think is sad actually about this, uh, and people might say, oh, well, you know, why would we lament the, the loss of the lad mag? Zoo doesn't count in this, uh, but FHM loaded had GQ words in it. Yeah. had words in it, and actually some brilliant reportage, uh, some really great opinion. I wrote some features that I'm very proud of for Loaded that I thought were really interesting, decent features, good interviews, and I really do think they just felt tired. But there, I truly believe that there is a place in the market for a lads mag for, for kind of guys who are a bit older but haven't lost it. And I do mean me uh, in that, you know. I mean, I go to the. I go mag for you. Uh, uh, mag for me. No, but I, I do mean that, that. You know, I go to the uh, on a on a train journey, for instance, and I go into the uh, station and I'm looking at for a magazine. GQ is full of stuff I can't afford. You know, it's full of it's full, it's basically I don't know who it's aimed at. People who who, who buy two thousand pound suits. There's somewhere in the middle where you know between Zoo and, and and GQ that features things for people that you can features clothes you can afford that features articles you can afford with great reportage with great opinion punchy and I think there's a, there's a place in the market for that and I think I think I, I, I don't know that it'll ever happen but I think it's a it, it's a sad loss because they did do some great stuff sometimes. There's also the nursery slope argument as well, isn't there, Jake? It's kind of like what we were saying about BBC Three and if you're in the habit of watching BBC TV then you might grow into BBC One and Two. In the same sort of way, like FHM, very clearly, I happened to read it actually last month because one was lying around and I haven't read it for about 10 years. And I enjoyed it, and, but it was obvious there were virtually no advertisers in there. There were literally two. Uh, but it was clearly aimed at sort of 16, 17, 18-year-olds, whereas GQ and Esquire is, seems to be aimed at people in their 30s. And I thought to myself, well, this is a way into getting the habit of reading men's magazines. If that's gone, is that generation going to grow up to want to read GQ and Esquire? No, I don't. I think they're online. They're, they're doing their own thing online. I think I don't know. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. I agree with Tom on the fact that society's changed dramatically. I don't know if we've all become metrosexual feminists. I think men probably get their carnal pleasures elsewhere these days, um, namely online. The real failure of these magazines is, yeah. I mean, people have changed definitely, but yeah, they've struggled to innovate online. And you look at something like Vice, which yeah, traditional magazine, and is now a considered in, to be in the sort of vanguard of online players and indeed if we are all uh, metrosexual feminists then uh, the idea that people are leaving zoo behind to go and watch hardcore pornography instead <laughs> is hardly preferable really is it um all right just before the quiz uh, let's talk about uh, armando inucci's mctaggart again uh, that lecture in august which you can listen to in full on our media podcast feed if you go back far enough uh, it looks jake like culture secretary john whittingdale has actually listened to armando inucci's concerns uh, is that true or am I being brainwashed by government propaganda? What's happening? No, you're, you're right. We broadcast broke this story this week. John Whittingdale and Armando Iannucci sat down soon after he delivered his, uh, his lecture and uh, talked about some of uh, the concerns that he raised. Which is namely that politicians don't seek the opinion of programme makers. Well, the, the point around that is that uh, John Whittingdale has pulled together this sort of advisory group um, 
to consult on the future of the BBC and it contains uh, a lot of commercial people, a lot of people who potentially have an agenda against the BBC and absolutely zero creatives. And what John Whittingdale is going to do now is hold two round tables, one in December, one in January, where he will bring together some of the cream of the crop of um, television producers, writers, you know, on-screen talent potentially as well and sit them down and, and talk to them about what the BBC means to them and how it should be funded and uh, what its remit should be in the future. My Tom, big, you're shaking your head again. My big question is, John Whittingdale, you're doing this uh, this sort of root and branch examination of the BBC and, and cutting it and all that sort of thing and you know, you're know going to be announcing what you're doing in spring. Why is it taking you to this point to meet creatives? It's crazy. And why did it take Amanda Iannucci... Basically to, to embarrass you in front of a room of creatives. Yeah, yeah. you off in a room full of creatives <laughs> for you to then do this. It's bonkers. Also, I noticed that Peter Kaminsky, who directed Wolf Hall, said that uh, he met up with John Whittingdale and said, I went to see him. I came away more concerned. We had a bit of a row, to be honest with you. What a surprise. I mean, I, I, and I can imagine probably it's going to be much the same. Well, he's going to be outnumbered this time, John Whittingdale. <laughs> I tell you what, I would have loved to have been sat next to John Whittingdale during that speech. I bet he was squirming. I was right over the other side, but I was like, damn, I should have sat next to John Whittingdale. Uh, we at the Media Podcast were sitting next well to John Whittingdale, you. and he did a very good, as you'd expect from the Conservative Party, very good slick job at appearing well, not to squirm at all. But everybody uh, got up and applauded him at the end. Uh, Mamando Anucci, not John Whittingdale, I should add. Um, uh, got up and, and and he was sort of in two minds about. Well, I, I was told by someone sat there next was to, a he was in two delay. minds about whether he should stand up to and applaud or whatever. And in the end, I think he he probably thought best and did do that. Was it like the Oscar loser face? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think they should um, kilty birds with one stone and broadcast these roundtables that Ianucci and Whittingdale are having on BBC Parliament. That's saving money. I think that would be a great idea. On Audible. (laughs) And put it on Audible, exactly. Uh, Right, Tom Latcham, very promising media podcast debut, I must say. Thank you. But It goes downhill from here. But indeed, how are you going to cope with the media quiz? That is what people are asking. Up against this grizzled veteran, Jake Cantor, I don't fancy your chances. Grizzled. I think I've (laughs) singularly failed every time I've tried this. (laughs) Uh, This week, the media quiz is entitled Order, Order. Uh, Is there anything more exciting than the ever-changing UK media law, it says here. But can you reorder these headlines and make sense of these recent cases? It's quickfire, so what you do, Tom, is you buzz in with your name. So uh, do you want to have, have a practice round at that? Tom. Very good. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, you've got to be a bit quicker, though. Oh, right, OK. If, if possible. <laughs> or not. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, so just buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Jake, you will say... Jake. Very good. Uh, the winner gets bail. Here is disordered headline number one. Court Q found contempt guilty publisher G Tom. of of Tom. Uh, it's the story uh, about how GQ and Michael Wolf in particular, who wrote a uh, article about the hacking trial during the hacking trial, uh, was found to have caused contempt of court and maybe fined, well, minimum of ten thousand pounds. I think it is exactly that. Uh, GQ publisher found guilty of contempt of court was those words in the correct order. Condé Nast published an article by Michael Wolfe during the Rebecca Brooks trial that displayed quote a substantial risk of serious prejudice. A cardinal sin and something you'd think, Jake, every magazine publisher would be absolutely on top of. Now, Dylan Jones, the editor of GQ, says he did seek legal advice at Condé Nast and they told him it's okay, run with it. Yeah, the lawyers said it was all right, so they ran with it. One of the lawyers still got a job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here is disordered sentence of words number two. Tim Times gave Sunday evidence in untruthful action. (laughs) Jake. Tim Yo, isn't it? 
It is Tim Yo. Yeah. I hadn't even got to the word yo, which was the end of the sentence. The sentence was, Tim Times gave Sunday evidence an untruthful action, yo. Uh, which means, uh, Tim Yo gave untruthful evidence in Sunday Times action. Would you care to pray see this legal story for us, Jake? Uh, probably not. Are you buzzed in? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I do know the answer, but I was just too slow off the mark. Go on. Uh, yeah. Well, Tim Yo was basically accused by the Sunday Times of... Uh, agreeing to uh, do some lobbying work uh, before then sort of saying he couldn't do that uh, and he then took them to court and now has to pay 400 odd thousand pounds to the Sunday Times ouch yeah the High Court judge described some of the MP's evidence as unreliable and untruthful it's just as well we're not held to the same standards here isn't it uh, right here is uh, the tie break <laughs> here is disordered sentence number three might its radio change to X have name was that a simultaneous buzz in? Yeah, it was. I'm going to give the point to Tom because he's the newbie. Uh, but yay! you haven't actually answered the question, Tom, so um, I, can't, I can't tell you you got it right. some sort of local radio station down in uh, Devon yeah. um, has decided to launch, not knowing Radio X was launching as well. No, I'm only joking, it's the other way around. Uh, radio X has launched and forgot to trademark their name. And there's a station called Radio X, E-X-E, uh, down in Exeter. Their name sounds the same, you see. They do. It sounds the same. So it's spelt uh, E-X-E, uh, but it's said, of course, because it's Exeter Radio X. You'd think that if a radio station was launching at huge expense and with a big marketing budget, as they did, Radio X, that they probably would have checked whether they could uh, trademark their name, but apparently not. Well, I'm familiar with my contract at Global, and I know if their lawyers are listening, I haven't commented on it at all. Uh, so, uh, that means that the winner of today's media quiz is Tom Latcham. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, that is it for today. My thanks to Jake Cantor as well. Jake, don't be too disappointed. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, he- I'm heaping praise on Tom, but I mean, you did a very sturdy job. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> uh, if you are new to the show, uh, hello, welcome. You can subscribe to this programme on your phone. It'll download just as soon as it's ready, just in time for your drive home on Friday. The media podcast.com will show you how to do that today's show is dedicated to these superior beings who have parted with actual money because they like what we do here they are david illick ian mcmillan laura elwood and kelly king boy also the wonderful people who have set up a recurring payment thank you uh, moving us closer to the time uh, where we can plan ahead more than a fortnight at a time uh, massive thanks to sylvia wilczek alan norris richard holmes and paul thompson and from samuel first from independent open access science blog the lipid chronicles for readable updates on the burgeoning area of scientific lipid research visit thelipidchronicles.com Thank you, Samuel. Uh, to join these swelling ranks and keep us on the air, just go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. It takes one minute. Do it now. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer was Matt Hill. The Media Podcast, a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.